I'm Anya, aka Strangely Literal, and this is a mailbag episode of Shadows and Shamblers. Um, and just an FYI to all you listeners out there, it's very early in the morning for me, it's very late at night for Alan, so we'll see how this goes. <laughs> <laughs> it's the just peril. very, very, very early in the morning for me. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. The perils of traveling abroad for a long period of time when you have a podcast schedule to keep up. We never planned on getting letters. We didn't think anybody would write us. Yeah. <laughs> but there's been so much great conversation from you guys, and we wanted to respond to it before it just piled up to, like, a, a completely unmanageable level. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, let's go ahead and start off. Uh, we have some episode one feedback from Kelly G on Twitter, at Glazebrook Girl. Uh, she's talking about Bilquis. She said, I like her more than in the book because she seemed more in charge, also more dangerous, more nuanced, more goddess-like. In the book, Gaiman didn't fully commit to her being a con woman. You could always say that John deserved what he got. The show kills the notion of the virtuous prostitute that only kills bad men in favor of a more complicated woman or god, which I like. I never thought about Bilquis kind of being... Uh, an avenging prostitute in the book but i guess that's definitely a reading you could take and uh yeah she's way more dangerous in the show she's kind of a serial killer (laughs) in a way yeah yeah i really like that comment it sort of puts bilquis in a different light that i really like i almost feel like it puts her more on par with the male gods that we've seen Mm. because yeah like it makes her equally predatory in a different way it's not like revenge for sexist violence or something like that it's literally just consuming humans for power which is more similar to i think what the male gods are doing yeah i yeah i like the I like Bilquis on the show a lot more than in the book. Although in the book, generally speaking, I don't like any of the coming to America stories or any of the side stories that Shadow is not in. They just feel like speed bumps to me. They always have every time I read the books. They flesh out the world really nicely, but they just like slow everything down a little bit. But the show is doing a really good job of turning those things into a better short story. I think the Bilquist stuff is still uneven in that regard. We they're never really stories the way that you know stuff like Jin and the Salim is kind of a has a beginning, middle, and end. Mm-hmm. They're more like these vignettes. But I'm interested in her. I feel like they are investing her with something that's going to pay off. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So our next email comes from Mandy K, friend of the show, at Mandy K on Twitter, who said, You guys are right. Shadow is being portrayed as someone making the transition from passive to active. But that's not who Shadow is. Shadow has never been passive. He's simply stoic and keeps everything very close to his chest. Everything he says and does is carefully calculated, but we aren't seeing that on the screen the way it's portrayed in the book. Yeah, I I really love this letter. Not just the parts where she compliments us a lot. No, I we, I, we took all that out. That's yeah. nonsense. Uh, no, <laughs> the the objectively true parts. Um, no, I I love this. Uh, Mandy is 
a super sharp reader. She has a really good book blog that I've gone through a little bit. You know, she was an English major and she kind of has like English major superpowers when it comes to character and plot. In my opinion, like that's where the heart of her analysis lies. If you listen to her, her show, that those are not strong suits for me personally. I tend to come at things from theme and from world building, and I land at character. So I think this is an excellent read on Shadow that he plays things close. He's very thoughtful and quiet, and that that might appear passive to people. Uh, and I think it's a, an excellent point that she's making. Yeah. The weird thing about English majors is that we ha- we kind of have this uh, way of dealing with subjective truth where things that contradict each other can be simultaneously true about a piece of art. Yeah. So <laughs> while I think that she is correct that you can read Shadow in a way that he is not necessarily passive, it doesn't cancel out my larger view of the book in general. And her letter reminded me of a recent uh, How Story Works podcast by Lonnie Diane Rich, episode number eight, where she talked about uh, tracking a character's goals to see if they're passive or not. So Lonnie has this acronym uh, called ASPA that stands for active. You track the goals of the character, uh, specific, personal, and achievable. So if we look at Shadow with with this method to see if he is passive or not, uh, does he have an active goal? And an active goal means like something that you're not like trying to avoid trouble. You're trying to pull the sword from the stone. That's your active goal. It's something that you're not running away from. You're going to. And I'm not sure that you can say that that's true for Shadow. Um, at any point he doesn't really seem to have a goal other than just like yeah not getting killed having something to do at least at this point yeah generally he gets into a situation and he's like i gotta get the fuck out of this situation like and that's that's his goal so that's why i kind of like the idea of wednesday and shadow as a sort of like dual protagonist because I feel mm-hmm. like they complement each other really well. The Shadow is kind of like the audience surrogate, and he's a mm. very sympathetic character that we really feel for. And then Wednesday provides the goal and the sort of like more active role of the protagonist. Because yeah. I agree that Shadow is super passive, but I don't seem to really mind it. And I was trying to think about why that might be the case. And I think that's because Wednesday is sort of compensating for him from a narrative perspective. And I think the other reason is because in this acronym, he really only fails at that level. Yeah, You're right. With, with Wednesday there, he's always kind of that compass needle pointing him in the next direction. And it's why, like, once I read Mandy's letter and I thought about it in terms of Lonnie's lesson, I was like, oh, he. this is why Shadow works narratively. And it's really insightful Wait, why is it that he works? <laughs> because because you don't really need to fulfill all four of those criteria to have a successful character. And it's something that Lonnie talks about in that lesson. That So he doesn't have an active goal. So that's the first one, right? Yeah. But he does always have specific goals. So like at, at first, he just wants to get to Laura's funeral. 
Yeah. That's what he wants to do. And everybody's trying to stop him. They're like, come work for me or, you know, come do this or come do that. He's like, God, I just want to go to the funeral, guys. That's all I want to do. Yeah. And so that's super specific. And then the third one is, is it personal? And in that case, yes, it's personal. He's, you know, he's mourning his wife. Uh, it's only important to him. The magnitude of its importance is completely personal. And is it achievable? Yes, he can get there. Uh, it's something that is within the scope of his abilities to accomplish. And so that always happens from scene to scene to scene with shadow. He always has a specific goal. You know, uh, I need to get away from these crazy henchmen of the technical boy. Uh, is it personal? Yeah, I'm being lynched. That's super personal. Uh, is it achievable? You know, not so much. He needs some help. But uh, in general, this is why I think Shadow works, because he hits the other three areas. I see. Yeah. And Wednesday sort of does that. For now. He's, For now, yeah. He's the training wheels. I want to... I just want to say real quick that my interpretation of the show is very influenced by my take on the book as a whole. And I can't specifically speak to the meaning of the book because the meaning of the book is kind of wrapped up in, in its ending. And we've committed to not having spoilers. In my opinion, Shadow's passivity is tied up in Neil Gaiman's take on Americans in general and the way that we use our power and our freedom as Americans. Uh -huh. It's very easy in America to live your life and never vote and never participate in the larger society, never care about the laws that are passed, the people who are elected to office. You can kind of bump along. I think most people, in fact, just bump along through life and never have an active goal or take responsibility for the things that the larger government and culture do and Gaiman is making a commentary on that with the way that shadow starts out and the way that he ends okay in yeah. my opinion well, but i can't really back <laughs> that up at this point we'll have to remember to revisit that uh later on in season three or whenever it gets there. Or whenever they get to it <laughs> mandy also says who saved shadow they didn't even pretend to address that in the episode. How was Wednesday's first question after Shadow tells him that he was lynched, not how did you get out? Are we supposed to accept that implies that Wednesday saved him? That's a great point. Yeah. And this is called narrative cheating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think there'll be a discussion about this more in the uh, next episode. So I guess we don't. We're not really going to talk at length about this, just to say that's a really good point that we ignored. And it's, yeah, it's, I think it's weak writing. And Mandy is, like I said, she's super perceptive. And so she caught on to this. That's not the way to write stuff. Like you should, <laughs> you should, the, the better way is to have the characters make an incorrect assumption based on the available evidence. They yeah. just don't address it. Like Shadow <laughs> brings it up. I got lynched and, and Wednesday's like, crazy. Do you want some pizza? Because they will totally deliver you pizza. <laughs> they just change the subject and whistle right past it. So that's not a good way to deal with the problem. We got another email 
uh, from Sarah Thomas. She made a comment that the statue in the museum, this is uh, in the Bilquis scene, the statue in the museum was not unusual for its pose. It's common enough that it has a name, the Ishtar pose. Uh, she is also known as Inanna. And uh, I looked this up. Uh, I recognized Inanna, and I know uh, Ishtar. Inanna is Sumerian, and Ishtar was Akkadian. These are like uh, Mesopotamian uh, cultures. They're kind of like the Rome and Greece of their time, like way, way ancient. And so like in the same way that the Romans and the Greeks kind of have similar gods, but different names like Zeus and Jupiter are pretty much the same dude. Uh Uh, This is the same kind of thing where Inanna and Ishtar they're not interchangeable. It's not, it's not like that, but uh, they're very, very similar and they're influenced by each other. Um, she goes on to point out that the Akasumite Empire, I'm, I'm assuming this is how you say this. I've read this stuff before, but I've never said it out loud. So if I'm saying things wrong, I apologize, you guys. The Akasumite Empire was in Eritrea and Ethiopia, and that is the region that the Queen of Sheba comes from. Oh. It'll be interesting... Yeah, I thought that was really cool. It'll be interesting to see how much that matters to Bilquis as a character uh, going forward. Uh, This is great. I really appreciate you writing in, Sarah, because I don't know about this stuff. I'm so glad that you wrote in and told us this. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, and and, uh, Ishtar, I know, does have... She's a really ancient goddess. She shows up in like... The Epic of Gilgamesh, which is like the oldest written story that we have access to. She's associated with sex and fertility. So, you know, it's pretty relevant uh, to, to Bilquis in general. Um, so the Ishtar pose, that's really, that's really interesting. Uh, she also pointed out that uh, Neil is not limited to fertility goddesses. There are heaps of goddesses that are not centered around their sexual power. And this is totally correct. Uh, She's right to call me out on this. When I was saying to you, like, hey, there's nothing he can do about it. This is the way it is. It's it's just a dark window into my mind that (laughs) when when I think of ancient gods and goddesses that people like uh the goddess of wisdom athena i think of her as like yeah a relatively new kid on the block uh from the greek pantheon (laughs) but it's that's totally not true she's thousands of years old it's just when i'm thinking of old gods i'm thinking of like the nameless (laughs) fertility goddesses that we don't know from uh from the african exodus (laughs) you know um pre-Mesopotamian and stuff like that. But yeah, she's totally, totally right. There's there's so many cool goddesses that we could be pulling. Uh, and we're just not. They're, they're very gendered um, in the ways that you pointed out in the episode. Please continue to call me out, Sarah, because <laughs> I love it. Keep me honest. So we have another comment from Jan M, who is at J-L-M-O, J-A-Y-E-L-L-E-M-O on Twitter who said, I think Bilquis in the museum is about mourning her past. She has to seek out her worship now. And then I guess previously the worship just came to her without her having to try very hard, is the implied longer than 140 characters version of that comment. (laughs) Um, Right. Which I think is a really good point. I I don't know why 
I didn't see it quite so clearly before. But yeah, it is sort of like mourning the past and looking looking backwards. I think the jewelry part and like with the recreating the person threw me off so much. I like wanted it to be way more complicated. It is very <laughs> and, weird. Yeah, and forgot about just the more simplistic interpretation. The emphasis on the jewelry. I hope that pays off one day. Yeah. Because it's very, it's very weird and they focused in on it pretty hard. But yeah, that's a great comment, Jen. Vivian also tweeted at us, uh, at Viax, what did you two think of Chernabog making the bet instead of Shadow? And I, I guess this is in comparison to the book. If I remember right, I think that Chernabog makes the bet in the book, though. I just reread this, this part. It wasn't, actually, it wasn't based on Vivian's comment or anything. I just happened to reread it because I'm going back through the book. Really? I can't really speak to this because I don't have my copy of the book with me. I was trying to travel lightly. Comparing Chernabog in the book to him in the show, I think the show does a way better job of making him into a character that you can relate to in any way. He's he's so great in the show. I actually really love him in the show. And in the book, he's just there, I think to be this menace in the background for shadow that every time that shadow has to do something, he's like, Oh shit, no matter what I do, I'm going to get hit in the head with this hammer. Well, okay. So let's come at this from another angle. Then do you think it would have been a stronger choice to have shadow make the bet instead? Hypothetically, it sort of goes back to the conversation we were having about shadow as passive versus active. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been one thing for him in either case to see the checker table maybe and then just say to Chernabog like you want to play but you know he's Chernabog's the one who brings up checkers he's the one who brings up everything so yeah Shadow's constantly going along for the ride and even in that case we were saying that Wednesday kind of compensates for that active goal uh, that's not the case if anything Chernabog steps into that role right there where he says you know like Eh, play me in checkers. So he, you know, he's the one making the choice. And I guess while we're on the topic of the checkers game, there's a, an interview with Brian Fuller and Michael Green that we'll talk about later, where they actually mention um, Wednesday's reactions to the bet making that we sort of discussed in that episode. They definitely saw Wednesday as putting these pieces in motion intentionally knowing what was going to happen between shadow and Cernabog. Yeah. 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 He's manipulating everything. Even if it seems like he's just sitting there eating, everything's kind of ticking along according to his plan. Yeah. I think I was sort of misinterpreting Ian McShane's face and his reactions. It wasn't that he was surprised or worried. He was gleefully, excited that everything was going according to his plan or or like he's maybe doing something really complicated where he's pretending not to be surprised while i mean he's like he is acting surprised while ian mcshane the actor is trying to act not totally surprised and and pleased that his plan is happening yeah yeah yeah. it's it's complicated i yeah and i think it's ripe for misinterpretation and it's a little bit confusing. I like that they're trying to do something complex, but 
you know, when if you but if you have to spell it out in an interview, I don't know if it's completely successful. But I, I we really like that episode and we really like that part. So, okay. So next up, Lini at Lini CK on Twitter said, "Thanks for discussion on the male and female gaze. That's all I could think about was Shadow getting in that tub, and we didn't even get to see his butt!" Exclamation <laughs> point. Uh, yeah, good point, Lini. Oh, Ricky Whittle. I wonder if that was, yeah, Ricky Whittle's choice or the director's choice. Mm. Uh, we'll see. Maybe maybe it's on the editing room floor. Maybe we'll see that uh, get leaked sometime. <laughs> did, did you know, I, I just found this out recently, that Ricky Whittle is British? Is everybody in the American God show British? <laughs> it's amazing. Like... I'm already so impressed with Ricky Whittle. And then I see interviews with him and I'm like, why is he having this British affectation? (laughs) And, but but he's totally British. And I was like, Oh my God, he's so amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. His accent work is great. I had no idea. Me neither. It's amazing. And then finally, I think this is our last comment from Kelly G at Glazebrook girl. Again, this time talking about episode three and Mrs. Fadil in the prologue, she says, At the end, as she stands before the door, it felt like a mirror of an immigrant experience. Shall I cross the threshold into an unknown land? Many immigrants never see the families they leave behind. They leave their gods, too. In a way, she is an immigrant in life and in death. And also, cats are assholes in every dimension. (laughs) (laughs) Blanket indictment of cats. Yeah. I can get behind it. Yeah, no, I love this interpretation as death as a mirror of the immigration experience and crossing these thresholds and going into the unknown. I think that's a a really insightful comment. And there's no going back, right? Which is the case for so many people who immigrate because they just can't afford to ever get back to their homeland or visit their family, maybe ever again for most of American history. So this is a super insightful a read on that whole scene. I loved it. Yeah. Or if you do go back, sometimes it doesn't work out the way you think. I've been sort of thinking recently about um, Liberia and sort of like that whole failed experience because um, I've been hanging out with a lot of uh, people from Africa this week. And it's mm-hmm. like, I feel like that's maybe one of the most tragic <laughs> stories in the whole world because you have you know, these Africans who were enslaved, taken to America, had to live through the brutality of the American slavery system. And then they, you know, like, pull out the resources, come up with a plan to, like, go back to Africa and, like, really uh, exercise their agency and take control over their destiny. And then they end up in literally, like, the most impoverished country in the world in a failed state and, like, arguably would have been much better off just staying here and persisting through Jim Crow shitty as that would be right yeah yeah Um, it's it's awful (laughs) it's super awful yeah Liberia is is a tragedy yeah and continues to be um I also threw in here from Kelly uh she made a quick comment about uh Jin and the Salim that in episode two, we meet the djinn, and he's wearing Salim's blue suit when he walks past Shadow, which was also a really nice catch from Kelly. Because that 
that kind of tells us that the jinn that that meeting happens after Salim and that he's wearing uh, oh, I see. Salim's clothes. So it puts it in the timeline. Oh my God, that is genius. I didn't even mm-hmm. notice that at all. Yep. And so that tells us also that the jinn is still out there. He did not just like invest himself into Salim and, or, you know, pass on his genie powers or anything like that. He, He's out there. He's doing his thing. He's free of being a cab driver um, and maybe is working with Mr. Wednesday. And hopefully not selling shit that people don't. (laughs) Oh, no. They switch spots. (laughs) No, that's really cool. And that sort of sheds a different light on the sexual exchange that they made because you see the fire flowing from the gin into Salim's body and... It's not him transferring his powers. It's just a sort of transcendent mystical sexual experience, which I kind of mm-hmm. like better. Yeah. Because it really does make it centered on the sexual act as a sexual act, as opposed to a metaphor or stand in for something else, which, you know, is great. We could all use a little more literal homosexuality in our tv shows right yeah that that's fearless yeah yeah so i found this article that i wanted to get your take on so the article is called everything to know about the zoraya sisters it's by lauren sarner on inverse.com and we'll have the link in the show notes and she says neil gaiman has actually invented the youngest sister for the story in order to give the sisters parallels to the three fates of Greco-Roman mythology. There, the three fates are women who spin the threads of destiny and determine when to cut them, thereby ending someone's life. Their fortune-telling on the show is drawn from this. This cultural melting pot of mythology has a curious impact because the Slavic deities are guardians while the fates are technically responsible for ending a life. Hmm. So I was curious what you thought about that. So it's... I didn't know this before, but it sounds like what they're saying is Gaiman was sort of combining Slavic mythology and Greek mythology, which, I mean, totally makes sense to me based on um, my experience being in that part of the world right now. I've been sort of like reading through even just like the shitty two-page version of the history from my Lonely Planet guide. And, <laughs> and like <laughs> this part of the world has just been like, you know, repeatedly conquered by different empires and is trading um, trading different influences from different directions every couple centuries or so. And it totally makes sense to me that there would be, you know, combinations of Greek and Slavic and other kinds of influences all kind of coming together. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Europe's a mess. If you're talking yeah. about religions, it's like, it's crazy. Yeah, I feel like growing yeah. up as an American, you sort of have this idea of, of, you know, like the modern nation state. And, and we sort of like project America's history onto that. But it's, it's so different. And it's so complicated. It's very, very messy. Yeah. And it's much more ethnically tied. I've never thought about the sisters in these terms. It makes sense to me, though, because they're associated with a constellation. And those are 
closely tied in almost every religion to your fate or future you kind of think of like um astrology right oh yeah yeah that's a really good point that if you're gonna yeah if you're involved in a constellation like some sort of fortune telling makes sense yeah um and on twitter jnm we mentioned uh at jlmo uh actually tweeted about the sisters and pointed out that in neil gaiman's books a lot of times you'll have three women show up who are like the crone and the maiden, you know, the virginal maiden and the wife. So kind of the three life stages. And that's what we get with the Zariah sisters as well. And so he's dealing in all these archetypes from, you know, that storytelling archetype right there to the, um, the fates and the actual uh, Zariah sisters. And we, we said this before that there's only two in the mythology so you don't the third sister is a total invention and actually i mentioned before that i was rereading the book and when i reread this <laughs> it's so funny when you get to that point where he meets the midnight star that the whole exchange happens that we were criticizing uh, about you know oh you need to kiss me so i know what kissing is like in the book he says like well what do i have to do and he says this in the show, too. He says, what do I have to do? Uh, beat you in a fight or play you in checkers? And she says, you don't even have to kiss me. Just take the moon. And uh, so they changed it to you have to kiss me. So they leaned into this choice of of the virgin, of the maiden with her power tied to sex. And it's more infuriating to me now that I've read the reread that scene. I'm like, why? Why did you make this choice? Yeah, that's all. That's all I could think when I read that part. I was like, what? Oh, that's awesome. I'm so glad that you had a chance to go back and reread the book because I had no time. (laughs) Okay, so now I think we're going to pivot a little bit and spend most of the rest of this episode talking about race. We have a couple articles that are sort of on that general topic. And so this first one that I want to talk about is uh, the interview that I referenced earlier. So it's in Entertainment Weekly, and the title of the article is American God's Bosses Answer Burning Questions from Episode 2. It's by it's by Mark Snedeker. First, I wanted to just uh, highlight something that Brian Fuller said about Orlando Jones's performance, because I feel like we probably didn't gush about that as much as we should have. Um, And I thought that this was really interesting. So apparently, Orlando Jones uses five different dialects while he's speaking to the slaves on the ship. Afrikaner accents, Creole accents, all of these different preachers woven into one, which was an attribute of him growing up and going to five different churches every Sunday because his mother wanted him to have a well-rounded religious experience. So he would shift into a different dialect to underline or highlight what he was saying so it had maximum impact for him as a storyteller and that it was an incredibly impressive experience to watch, I guess, as it was filming and I think also for you and me um, and all of the other viewers as we're watching it on TV. And I I haven't had a chance to go back and rewatch that scene, but I definitely want to, now that I know about that, to see if I can notice his accents shifting as he's going. So, yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, and then in that same article, Michael Green was talking a little bit about how they envisioned the prologue. Um, and they were basically thinking, how would a modern day stand-up comedian preacher who was aware of how things go in the world 
How would he channel that rage? And then he notes that the coming to America sequences always exist in their own tonal mythic space. So the ridiculous is welcome here because stories are being retold or written down for us. And it's always through an author's pen. So they felt like they had license. And because this is the way that Anansi would like to tell the story retrospectively. Yeah. So yeah, that's sort of like what we were talking about earlier. And I think it's really cool. You know, you could imagine that like maybe in the moment he was just channeling the rage about the theft of people, right? Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. as it gets retold and retold over the centuries, you know, just like more and more injustices stacked on top of each other and the rage building and until the current day when it's just like, you know, the whole history of African and black people in America. Yeah, I like that idea. So kind of like um, if you look at Homer's Iliad, like the way that that story starts out is with a, a big party uh, of all the gods showing up for like a beauty contest. And the prizes in the beauty contest are you will win this battle in the Trojan War that has not happened yet or is not on the table to be happening because this prologue to the uh, to the Iliad, which is about the Trojan War, um, has been kind of appended onto the story that's been retold over and over and over to audiences who already know the story. So it's like uh, it's like what you're saying that probably in the moment he was mad because his people were kidnapped, but now you've retold it so many times, and in the context of American history, we've added on all these other anachronistic elements that don't make sense in the timeline but do make sense in the context of us as the audience members receiving that story. Yeah. So that's super cool. I like that. Yeah, I really like that. Um, I just wish it was more clear or will be made more clear in the story, you know, and and that we're not not given to think that Anansi has deep foreknowledge. Yeah. Whenever we re-encounter him. I feel like the show is maybe meant to be rewatched and sort of taken as a whole once you know what the ending is, right? Because that's kind of how books are meant to be consumed a little bit more than TV shows. Yeah. And and then also, you know, like everybody binge watches and then you get like all these nerds on the internet making podcasts about the show and like (laughs) overanalyzing, you know, it's the worst. Uh (laughs) <laughs> I also had a thing about Orlando Jones, uh, an article that I found that kind of dovetails nicely with this, uh, an interview uh, from Joanna Robinson in Vanity Fair, who we've mentioned before on the show, uh, with Orlando Jones. And uh, he said about that uh, particular scene, he's, he kind of gives some insight into what his emotional motivation was when he was giving the speech. And he said, I mean, he really appeals to their emotional points of view very much like a cult leader does. And then he gets them to burn themselves alive on that ship. It still has to be done in a way that's charismatic enough to get your followers to do the bidding. That to me felt very much in keeping with what we were seeing at rallies where these things were being said to people, we're going to build a wall. Muslim Americans are the enemy. This woman is a liar. She can't possibly be your president. It seemed like people were being led down a path to where they're burning themselves alive. 
that was on my mind when we were shooting that scene. So he's kind of like putting himself emotionally in the position of candidate Trump, uh, which was happening at the same time that they were filming that scene and trying to get his people who are following him uh, to destroy themselves for his benefit, which was kind of mind blowing to me. Whoa. Yeah. That just blew my mind. I don't really like have anything smart to say in response other than, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it's, I don't know, like sometimes, you know, uh, I don't want to, you know, disparage Mr. Jones or anything, you know, like sometimes actors and directors can come out and say things that are super smart in retrospect and be like, this is what I was thinking and who knows. But either way, I think that this is super insightful way to interpret the scene and to and to look at the gods in general that they are centered on their power right and they need the people to support them and they will do whatever it takes to survive that they're not going to serve the best interests of the people they're going to serve their own best interests yeah and i guess i feel like (laughs) since we're talking about trump maybe we should uh give some context for like what day it is because the state of the Trump government is changing from day to day. Um, oh, moment to moment. Yeah. This is, uh, it's Friday morning. Well, it's Friday morning for both of us, just different Friday mornings. Um, <laughs> so let's see, the special counsel has been appointed and, but yeah, who knows? Oh, I'm probably just being overly optimistic now. <laughs> Um, so the next article, so now I guess we're going, we're going to shift from like analysis of Anansi's prologue versus, um, like race more broadly in the show. So this is an article, um, by Janita Davis on blackgirlnerds.com. The article is called Fuller's American Gods is talking about race again, y'all. So this is referring to episode two again. I love how Fuller begins this episode in the blackest way possible, only to end it with whiteness still struggling to come to terms with something that has been a part of America for centuries. The stark contrast, helped along by the departures, are a mirror on our real-life race relations, making our issues and discomforts with race laughable. We live in a country spackled together with the blood and tears of black people, yet we are still having trouble centering blackness in normal everyday conversation? Haven't we had enough time for compromise and exploration? Or is 200 years not enough time? Y'all need a few more minutes, America, before we can start a straightforward conversation about race without the intrusion of whiteness. Mm. Um, She's on the pulpit. Yeah. She's preaching. Yeah, no, I love this take on it. And so I guess that's kind of a reference to the end of the episode where Chernabog has, you know, declared that, like, yes, he's going to kill Shadow. And then frames it with the comment it's a shame you're my only black friend Mm -hmm. and so yeah he's like taking this racialized violence and making it all about himself and his whiteness and like the sort of performative aspects of that and yeah i thought that was just a really really great comment and i'm i think we mentioned uh an article by her in the last article discussion roundup that we did so i'm really looking forward to to keep in reading uh, what she has to say about the show. And maybe we can even interview her at some point. We'll see. Yeah, she followed our, our podcast. Oh, did she? Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. I need to follow her on Twitter. <laughs> Jodita, if you're out there, we love you. 
You're great. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you like a weird thing about the scene that I don't think we've mentioned. The Orlando Jones scene was actually filmed for episode four. And we talked about. Oh, I had no idea. I wonder how it works with like the directors because right like if if you're filming scenes for an episode and then it ends up getting put into a different episode then that's like a completely different director who did all of that Mm -hmm. and they don't end up getting credit for that work yep i guess just i guess when you have these big collaborative projects it's hard to keep track of who exactly does what and you just sort of like hope that the credits give a general indication and brian fuller has been really good about pointing out to people that the director for that episode is the one who directed that particular scene when he whenever he's had the opportunity, which is why I know that. And we said that episode three was chopped up, you know, because they wanted to change how the story was being told for whatever reason. And this was part of that change up was they moved that from the fourth episode to the second and then they moved some things out of the second into the third and just shuffled things around so it's kind of crazy to think about that not being the first thing that you see after the lynching yeah right because it's so much more powerful yeah oh good point that was yeah that was a really great decision sorry i'm still thinking about the janita davis piece and thinking about the way that you and i as white people are discussing race on this show and i guess i don't know like to what extent we should be really exploring our whiteness and like the role of our whiteness in it right because you need some level of self-reflection and Mm -hmm. and like grappling with how you're a part of a white supremacist system and you benefit from the legacy of slavery and our position as white people. So like how to do that without making it all about our whiteness at the same time. I don't have an answer to that, I guess. I'm just thinking about it as a question in a slightly different way. I think so. the answer is is to continue to point outwards and to point out to everybody that like we don't have all the answers and we certainly don't have the context in that case and to be super honest with people and say like go read articles from these people go read articles from those people and that's something that i'm really proud that we're doing on this show that we're not pretending to know everything that you know we're leaning on you guys as the audience to correct us when we're wrong and to admit it and also to come to you guys with some humility and say like we're taking this information from people outside of the show who are interpreting it at the same time we are uh, because we don't have all the answers. Yeah. So the next article that we got is by Maya Phillips on blacknerdproblems.com. It's called the mythology of the black man in American gods. Uh, It's a, it's a lengthy article that was really excellently done. I, I just plucked out, a little piece of it um, that she's talking about uh, nostalgia. And she says, uh, part of the brilliance of Gaiman's novel is exactly what he chooses to mythologize in his story of America. Yes, there are gods, but the real mythological landscape is America itself and an outdated form of American nostalgia. The house on the rock, the roadside attractions, the trek through middle America, 
these are the harmless elements of a distinctly American nostalgia. But where is Black America in this? Where is Native America in this? Or Asia America? Or Hispanic America? The problem with nostalgia is that it favors a particular perspective, as is the case with all forms of memory. So when we talk about American nostalgia, what does that mean exactly? Because for many people, it may mean an America owned, characterized, and defined by whiteness. Which is exactly what we were just talking about, right? Yeah, and I think totally relates to the Trump movement, right? And his whole his whole tagline of make America great again implies right. that like at some point America was great, but America has really only been great for white people. You know, it's more like, remember when America was less complicated and you didn't have to worry about all this stuff? Yeah. Like, remember when only one group of people had a voice? That's really what it's about. Yeah. Remember when people weren't constantly asking you to, like, actually be self-reflective and, like, (laughs) think about how you fit into other people's oppression and suffering? Yeah. And so this is and this ties it into the story, into the way that the story is, which is great because, you know, the story of the gods is so much the story of immigration and immigrants and how they they come and they lose all their power and they are stuck in the experience of the old world and can't adapt into the new world and how America grates against that motion of integration and only serves, you know, the generations that are born here Um yeah, like this is really insightful and a great article. And uh, and she makes this great point about the background of the story in general and the context that you're taking the story in. Because like we do the live tweets on on Sunday nights and I go through the American Gods hashtag and read like a lot of what people out there are saying. And you'll see like different groups of people, different ethnic groups of people take in the story in very different ways and have very different reactions to what's happening in exactly the way that um, she's pointing out here. You know, Asian Americans, Black Americans, they have a different reaction to Bilquis than, say, like a lot of white people who are like, oh, that was really disturbing. And a lot of black people are like, this is fucking awesome. (laughs) So so it's really important when you're watching the show, I think, to just think outside of your experience a little bit and go, what would it be like to watch the show if I was Native American? Or what would it be like if I was Asian American or whatever? And, um, And go seek out people who are talking about that. Yeah, yeah. And then that... That second step, I think, is super important because it's not just, I mean, like trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes is a good exercise, but I think a lot of times we're not very good at it. So really, it's sort of like actually seeking out different perspectives um, that it's critical. I want to talk just briefly about sex and sexual orientation from episode three. So this is an, an interview with Brian Fuller and I think maybe also Michael Green in The Hollywood Reporter um, with Josh Wiggler. And the title is American Gods. Brian Fuller explains that wild and empowering sex scene. And so, again, I uh, just sort of to give some context, uh, Brian Fuller is gay. He talks a lot in this article about his experience growing up and coming of age in the 80s, or as he calls it, the AIDSies. 
and sort of like what it was <laughs> like to to come into your gay identity and sexuality during that time. And so for this episode, he says he really wanted to portray Salim and the Jinn in a way that's sex positive for a gay man who comes from a country where homosexuality is punishable by death and you can be thrown off of a rooftop. It was very important to us to look at Salim's story as a gay man from the Middle East whose sexual experience was probably relegated to back alley blowjobs and didn't have an intimate personal sexual experience. In the book, Salim blows Jin in the hotel and then he's gone. It was important for us in this depiction to have Salim drop to his knees and prepare to achieve sex the way he'd been accustomed to, and the jinn lifts him off his knees and kisses him and treats him much more soulfully and spiritually to change his perception of who he is and what his sexual identity has become. That felt like it was empowering in a different way, showing a protagonist as the one who is being penetrated. That comes with all sorts of preconceptions of gender roles and what it is to be a gay man at the same time. What we wanted to achieve there is for an audience who might not necessarily be accustomed to seeing two men having sex to recognize it as a beautiful thing. Um, yeah. And I think they totally succeeded in that. I've just seen so much positive response to the sex scene and to saying that it was like so refreshing and different and beautiful and sexy in a way that gay sex is basically just not portrayed in media. Like, I almost feel like when people look back at the history of LGBT people in media and on TV, a lot gets made of um, the kiss between Willow and Tara on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and how Joss Whedon had to fight for that. And mm -hmm. they wouldn't even let him do it until... Actually, I'm not going to say that because hopefully all of you are going to go out and watch Buffy and I don't want to spoil that. Um, but yeah, basically, <laughs> Joss Whedon was fighting for that for a long time, and it took him a long time to get the network to agree to have just, you know, not even like a sex scene, but just like a simple kiss between the two lesbian characters. Shit, I guess even that's a spoiler. Well, whatever. <laughs> it's a show from 1997. People can deal with it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's iconic. So. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, I think it's okay. yeah, it's like pretty well known. Okay, cut all this out. This hedging and <laughs> hemming and hawing. Uh, the point is, okay, yeah. No, maybe just leave all this in. We'll keep it real today. <laughs> getting, getting really down to who we are. Um, yeah, so I feel like this could be like a really um, critical moment, I guess, in the history of the way that LGBT relationships are depicted in television you know, and how it's taken almost 15 years to get from that, like, simple, sweet lesbian kiss to being able to just, like, depict, like, very graphic and, I think, beautiful gay sex. And, like, you know, male gay sex has always been more problematic than female gay sex for whatever reasons. Oh, yeah, because it threatens the you know, the masculinity of all the men who are watching it. Yeah. You know, like within the, that kind of paradigm of the patriarchy, you know, where you can't possibly question your, you know, who you're attracted to. It must, must, must be women yeah. for you to be a potent man. Well, and just since like so much of media comes with the male gaze, right? Like yeah, two women, 
having sex is super hot and two men having sex is super icky. Um, yeah. Actually, on Twitter, uh, Becca Eller at the underscore Becca Eller started a great thread where she was talking about the sex scene and a lot of uh, people who follow us and that we follow jumped in on that conversation and a lot of them are women and they were pointing out that it was pretty hot and sexy that scene uh, in addition to you know being really emotionally connected and relevant to the story that they're telling and everything else so there's I've seen almost universal uh, praise for the for the sex scene and actually I pulled an article that talks about just exactly what you're saying that um, the name of the article is how American gods changed the game for gay sex on TV and that this could be a paradigm shift, you know, kind of going forward. Oh, that's awesome. I'm actually, I'm glad I didn't see that you had pulled this article until now. And I got to <laughs> feel really smart and, uh, and have that confirmed by someone else. <laughs> um, Brandon cook who writes for the guardian, uh, he says, but the sequence is more than simple titillation. It is a truly evocative and emotional vignette. We see vulnerability laid bare upon a hotel bed when the weakened Salim meets another worn soul, no matter how fantastical, and each offers the other refuge from their loneliness. And it all happens between two gay Muslim men, a section of the population stigmatized from all sides who barely get a look in on mainstream TV. In that, even the casting becomes groundbreaking because one of these <clears throat> actors is uh, homosexual himself, which tends to be rare uh, to hire a homosexual actor to play a homosexual character is, uh, you know, unfortunately doesn't happen very much. And, and he's right in this look at Muslim men uh, of people of color and homosexual men are all super marginalized, never in the mainstream, and their story never gets told by them, you know, in their own context. So the scene is groundbreaking on multiple levels and is uh, is really to be applauded and and makes this show important on, on a cultural level. Yeah. Well, and I think, too it kind of sheds more light on the themes of immigration and like the what immigration does for people in the show more generally, right? Because we've been talking about the way that a lot of immigrants are mistreated when they come to America or like the African slaves who were kidnapped and brought here and got mistreated. And so I think for a lot of people... They either accidentally end up in America or they come to America looking for opportunity and are met with sort of like hardship and, and a, you know, a lot of hopes that don't necessarily get borne out. But then there are some positives, right? Like he's getting to explore his sexuality and like have more freedom in that area than he was able to have before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point that it can it can be a trade-off in a way he can more fully be himself even if his opportunities are still limited in other ways yeah yeah um, exactly yep so i'm i'm so happy with the direction of the show and uh there's so much great conversation being stirred up by the show you know in the wider culture and among the people who are listening to us 
And we really appreciate you guys writing into us, joining us for the conversation, letting us know what you think, correcting us when we need correction. Please do that, you guys. Don't be shy about writing into us if you disagree with us or are disappointed by our take, because you're more likely to get <laughs> uh, answered when we uh, when we do our feedback sessions. And let us know, too, if you would prefer to have like a mailbag episode instead of having it integrated into the show we're not totally sure how we're going to do our format so maybe you prefer it to be this way let us know yeah yeah so if you want to leave us feedback you can either visit shadowsandshamblers.com slash contact or send us an email to contact at halloweddgroundmedia.com Um, And don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. I think we're now ranked, what, 17 out of 40 for American Gods podcasts. So eh, we're pretty happy with that. But, you know, we wouldn't be upset if we started to move up the list a little bit. Um, Yep. We have some, uh, we have a really exciting interview lined up with the editor from episode three, Amy Duddleston. And so the, the higher profile we get as a podcast, the better guests that we can get to be on our show. And we really want to be able to provide that content for you. So rate and review. Yep. Thank you guys so much for listening and uh, expect a show from us very soon on episode four. And I cannot wait to talk about Get Gone. Oh, oh my you God. Episode four. I think it's my favorite episode so far. Definitely. All right. Thanks, everybody. Yep. Shadow and Shamblers is a hollowed ground media production and is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license. <laughs> At the end of the day, when you're in an academic community like this that is really like focused on trying to solve like deep problems in the world, there is such a spirit of community and like I to cert, to some extent like we all kind of exist outside of nationalism. Yeah. And are yeah. and are really focused on an international perspective and it's like it's very cool and refreshing. Okay. So I'll stop talking about my life. <laughs> science is always the best. It's like that's it's like science in the Olympics. Or yeah. like why can't people just be like this? God damn it. <laughs> I wish that could be the title of this mailbag episode, Science. <laughs> <laughs>